to get back and to be with you. I want to thank Ilse uh, Pestige for ascending the sacred desk last week uh, and uh, offering the, the sermon. I really appreciate that. And I'm really excited to see it. All who are able are invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, friend, who sent me to be a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, What should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich toward God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. In my experience, Funerals are difficult. That probably doesn't come as a, a big shock to you. But there are even often more difficult times after the funeral. Like when it comes time to start deciding who gets mom's precious memories collection. Slicing the family pie can be extraordinarily tricky because on top of all the grief, figuring out what is, uh, who, who gets what, it, it, it's often a nightmare of long buried recriminations. Now why do I say that for many families the time after the funeral is the hardest part? Well, because while funerals are often searingly painful, but they at least have a positive purpose, right? to allow loved ones a, a, a formal way to begin the process of grieving, of saying goodbye. So funerals well done 
are about embracing and owning the past so that it's possible to move forward with hope. On the other hand, the rugby scrum whereby people take stickers with their names on them and start laying claim to stuff is almost never a redeeming experience. I get mom's wedding ring. Mm, not so fast. See, three years ago, mom promised I could have her wedding ring when, she, when we were at the beach together. Well, no, no, see, I, 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 I was talking to mom at Christmas, and she was clear that I was getting her wedding ring, and you were supposed to get her Danielle Steele collection. No, 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 that's not right. I'm pretty sure I get the ring. Janice gets Danielle Steele novels, and you get her used Kleenex collection. See, humans have an amazing capacity to believe that no matter how much they have, that it won't be enough. Believing the pie is only so big, we grab for as much of it as we can when, uh, when we can get a chance at it because the more somebody else gets of it, the less there'll be of it for me. I mean, how else do we explain the fact that the wealthiest 1% of the U.S. population owns 40% of the wealth? I mean, how can it be moral to have so much while so many others struggle to put food in their children's mouths and a roof over their heads? I mean, take our, our gospel for this morning. Right before chapter 12 opens up, Jesus has just concluded a series of verbal confrontations with the religious big wheels. He denounced the Pharisees and the scribes for their dogged interest in accruing as much honor and power as they could get their hands on. He calls the Pharisees unmarked graves and accuses the scribes of loading people with burdens too heavy to bear while refusing to lift a finger to help them. Now, as you might imagine, this doesn't make him any friends among the temple elite. In fact, Luke tells us that the environment around Jesus was getting increasingly hostile. Jesus has more to say about money and the relationships of power to money than any other single thing in the Gospels. See, Jesus wants to set money in the context of eternity. But for Jesus, eternity isn't some far-off land after we die. It's the reign of God that's unfolding right here and now where everyone has enough, but nobody has too much. Where those who've lived for so long on the margins get to take their place finally in the center. Where abundance is a function of our commitment to sharing and not an accident of nature or fortune. Too often, uh, stewardship is a month in November that we, uh, we, we talk about money and how are we going to keep the lights on if people don't pull out their checkbooks. But Jesus is dropping a little stewardship on y'all right here in the last day of July, trying to remind us that stewardship is a way of looking at our world and the lives that we live within it and realizing that there is enough for everybody. If only we'll treat community as an opportunity to share ourselves and what we have with one another 
and not some kind of competition. As chapter 12 opens up, we see a great multitude gathered to hear Jesus speak. In fact, the number of those gathered was in the thousands. And Luke tells us that they trampled on one another, presumably to get a better look at this guy, Jesus, who's, who's issuing a Galilean smackdown out in the countryside. With the crowd assembled and his disciples at his feet, Jesus turns on the Pharisees again and he says, don't let the Pharisees fool you. You know that the life you live in private will finally catch up with you. The corruption you cling to in the dark will be open for all to see. Don't, don't kid yourself. And then Jesus changes tack and tells his disciples about not fearing the authorities, those who can kill the body, but nothing more. The folks in charge want you to think that they control the world a world where it's standard fare for the rich and the powerful to have more of everything than they need while everybody else has to scrape by. They want you to think that this is just the way the world is and they're willing to make life miserable for anybody who won't get on board with it. But see, Jesus says God has another world in mind, one in which there's enough for everybody. Nobody gets forgotten. Even the sparrows and the hairs on your head have value. And here's the thing. If the ruling authorities come after you for holding out for God's new world rather than tucking your tail between your legs and settling for the one the powerful people want you to think is inevitable, well, don't worry. God will stand with you in the face of their wrath. If you are unwilling to settle for this tiny pinched world of scarcity, God will hold you up lest you fall. Now, what's Jesus doing here? And what, what point is he driving at? Well, remember, the atmosphere is pretty tense. Those in control, who, who, who are in control, they're pretty annoyed with Jesus. The crowd is unruly enough that people are getting trampled. So the stage is set for Jesus to tell those who've gathered to make sure that they're more concerned with how their lives are shaped by God and the world God is revealing than by the vagaries of the present kingdoms and empires. And then in the midst of this conversation on the new world and its abundance for everybody, Jesus is announcing an amazing new reality. But almost as though he hasn't been listening to what Jesus has said at all up to this point. A man pops up and he says, apropos of nothing, uh, teacher, will you tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. To which Jesus replies, friend, what do you think this is, probate court? <laughs> Turning to the crowd, Jesus says, look, maybe I'm not making myself clear here. What I'm trying to tell you is that living as though there isn't enough only strengthens a view of life where the folks who have more than they need seem like an inevitability. But a world where 
people have to fight over scraps with one another is exactly the kind of world I've come to undo. <coughs> and so Jesus launches into this story. Apparently a wealthy landowner had a good year with the crops, and he thought to himself, what should I do? I've got no place to store my crops. And so the idea that he came up with sounds plausible. He figured he'd tear down the barns that he was presently using and then just build bigger ones. Now that, it would seem, is not really the problem. What he said next was what Jesus apparently took issue with. The man said, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you've prepared, well, whose will they be now? Now, it's important to ask ourselves, not just how we hear this story, but how would the people who were sitting at Jesus' feet have heard this story? How would Luke's first century readers have heard this story? Well, for one thing, they would have immediately disliked the story's main character. Now, why is that, you wonder? I mean, kind of, kind of hasty, isn't it? I mean, they don't even know this guy. How do they know whether or not they're going to like him? <clears throat> well, in, as we've discussed before, in ancient Near Eastern Palestine, all Jesus had to say was, the land of a rich man produced abundantly. And the crowd already knew all they needed to know about this person. At the time Jesus was roaming about the Palestinian backwoods, there are basically two kinds of people. There's the rich and there's the poor. There was a handful of the former and a multitude of the latter. And practically speaking, there was no middle class. There's not really anybody in the, in the middle. Now, there were, of course, different levels of poverty. I mean, there were the desperately poor, who were always on the edge of starvation because they had no way to support themselves, either because they were disabled or widowed or orphaned. And then there were subsistence farmers who were always one bad harvest away from calamity and starvation. And of course, there were tradespeople, artisans and fisher, uh, fishermen who Sometimes made just enough to eke out a meager existence, but oftentimes not. Because of the way that land was apportioned by God to the families of Israel as a permanent holding for each family, and because land was the primary measure of wealth, which meant that people didn't willingly sell their land, but lost that land most often through foreclosure on debts that they couldn't repay. Debts for buying things like seeds, or new fishing nets, or food. In that kind of a setting, to be a wealthy landowner meant that you were one of the people who was most likely conniving to cheat folks out of their family lands because you loaned them money they couldn't pay back. Which meant that you became an absentee landlord renting people's family lands back to them for them to work as sharecroppers on their own land. 
Consequently, at least to the peasants, Jesus always seemed to be surrounded by, <coughs> being a wealthy landowner meant that you were the bad guy, right? The stock character in any story. The man in this story is Mr. Potter, right? And it's a wonderful life. And his land that is producing abundantly, that's Pottersville. But why is the rich man in this story not just a fool for building all these extra barns and putting all of his eggs in one basket, as it were? Why is he not just a fool, but a villain to the crowd? Well, because he treats everything and everyone as things for him to use to increase his own sense of security. See, instead of seeing his abundance as things to be shared with people, so that nobody need go without any longer. This is a guy who's wandering around trying to figure out how to get more of stuff he doesn't need. Jesus tells a story about the way things are that everyone in the crowd recognizes, one in which a few have everything and store it up for themselves in even larger barns, while everybody else has to scramble every day to find enough to eat. Unable even to fill the family dinner table, let alone another barn, I mean, this is the kind of world that comes to be the focus point of Jesus' challenge. A challenge in which he points to another world, a new kingdom, another, another way of living together. Now, immediately after our passage this morning, Jesus lays out the contours of this new world, this alternative kingdom. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear, for your life is more than food and the body's more than clothing. And do not keep striving for what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and do not keep worrying, for it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things. And God knows that you need them. Instead, strive for God's kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. In other words, we have more than we need. And therefore, for those of us for whom that is true, we have a, a special role in beginning to embody a different way of living together. See, our responsibilities as individuals, as the church, isn't to build bigger barns to store more stuff. It isn't our job to figure out how to get more of what we believe is our share of the big pie. Our big mission in this new reign, what we really need right now, according to Jesus, is to figure out how to share more of ourselves and our stuff with those who have no barns and very little to put it in them, if they, even if they did. I love this story that, um, that Donnie Green tells from Donnie from Feed Louisville. Uh, of course, Donnie, if you don't know Donnie Green, works out with uh, the houseless every day in our city. And one day he, he, he wrote uh, on his Facebook page uh, about an encounter he had with a man named Dallas. He said, there's this houseless person that lives on Bardstown Road. Sometimes he's friendly, sometimes he's a bit gruff. Plenty of reasons for the latter anyway. A stranger gave him a $100, a $100 bill for the 
for him just out of the blue the other day. I watched him as he bought himself some food, a beer, and a water, and then ate his meal, and proceeded to give me money to help other people. And he began distributing money to every other houseless person in the vicinity, just walking around handing out cash. At the end of the day, I saw him again, and because this guy's kind of a fixture in some parts of the Highlands, and he only had a couple dollars left, which is enough for another beer. And he was so happy. <laughs> he looked at me and he said, ah, yeah, a hundred bucks is a lot of money, but what am I gonna do with all that when so many other people need help? Well, I mentioned, well, you know, you could have saved a little bit of it for tomorrow. And he said, I may not be here tomorrow. You never know. And with that, I gave him a buck and I headed home. And then Donnie closed his account by saying, thanks, Dallas, for teaching people how to treat other people. Yeah. Thanks, Dallas. It occurs to me that we need you very badly right now. I think that's what we need right now. Amen.